Welcome to Tim Stodds FM, a place to share new ideas, speak freely, and continuously find ways to live our best lives. And now your host, Tim Stoddart. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Tim Stoddart. Welcome to Tim Stodds FM. Thank you so much for joining me. What's up? Hope everybody had a great weekend. I certainly did. My father was in town. He came to visit me in the good old Nash of the Ville. We got to watch the Brian Dawkins Hall of Fame uh, introduction, introduction speech. (laughs) I think I just said douche. So that was great. We have an exciting, exciting podcast episode for you today. Before we get started, I'd like to make a quick announcement. This episode is brought to you by the Tim Stodds Academy. The Academy is back. I just reformatted a couple things. I took it down for about two months because I wasn't really happy with it. And I have launched it back on the website. What is the Tim Stodds Academy? Well, it's a free set of online courses that are going to help you grow and build a profitable business we're gonna have courses that are specific to online businesses courses that are specific to brick-and-mortar businesses e-commerce social media courses SEO courses it's all gonna be free it's gonna be free and it's gonna be great we have two courses up right now you can view all of them at timstodds.com slash Academy if you don't believe me Take a look for yourself. I'm really excited to get that going, and I'm excited for the community that the Academy is is going to build, and I'm excited to watch everybody kind of help each other with their own ideas and, uh, and, and cheering each other on for the success of their own companies that they're going to start. So that's great. We're all going to kill it. I'm really excited about that. My guest today is my new friend Lily Hansen. She was a delightful, delightful guest. Uh, It was the last interview I did in Nashville before my actual studio was set up, so she invited me to her loft that was just covered in the most beautiful art. Uh, It was such a creative place. I got such a cool vibe from her. So who is Lily Hansen? She is the author of Word of Mouth Conversations. It's a really interesting story how uh, I got to meet her. Me and Juliana, about three weeks ago, went to a restaurant in in the Gulch. It's a a neighborhood in Nashville. And I saw her book, Word of Mouth Conversations, on the kind of coffee table as we were waiting to be seated. And I couldn't put it down. I was so fascinated by it. It's it's basically a coffee table book that has uh, portrait photography and real long-form interviews of just people that you would meet, everyday people, to learn more and more about their stories and the humanity behind you know, the people that you see walking down the street. I kind of took note of this book, and then in this Slack channel of the Entrepreneur Center in Nashville that I'm a part of, the very next day, I saw a link to her book again. So I said, this is my chance. I reached out to her. She invited me to sit down, and we just had like a really, really great conversation. I think the word for Lily is delightful. She was a delightful person, a delightful guest, and I, I enjoyed every second of speaking to her. So I know you're going to enjoy this podcast episode. Please be sure to check out her book. All the links to uh, her book and her website are in the show notes to this podcast. And without further ado, please help me welcome my guest, Lily Hansen. Like right there is fine. Yeah, I usually keep it like right here. I will start off this awesome conversation by saying once again that I love your place. Thank you. It is so cool in here. It must feel like very inspiring to just be able to come here and sit and work. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I always joke it's the lily pad or lily land yeah. and, um, you know, I, so I live at the city's only artist loft. So it's, I, I believe it's 60 units dedicated cool. to all artists, yeah. writers, painters, actors. Wait, wait, wait hold on. I'm, I'm sorry. You said this whole loft is like dedicated to artists. Yeah. The entire loft. 
Is that like a common thing within an artist's scene to have like spots of the city and housing for artists? Um, it's interesting you said that because right now I'm actually doing some research with my intern Cassidy uh, looking for other artist lofts in the country. And so it's not. I, I mean, there are certain companies that do this in, across wow. the states, but before I moved to Nashville, I never heard of it. And I was. Really, I never heard of it either. Yeah. And so I was really fortunate. I got in five months after they opened, and I've wow. been here five years later. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. Well, um, let me kind of start at the beginning then. First, thank you so much for coming on my show with me. I really appreciate it. I know that you and I kind of just talked back and forth through Instagram a little bit. So uh, this is an opportunity for me. And I will say, um, this might be kind of a, a cool spot to start off. This is the first time um, where I've actually been a little bit nervous because you're like a professional interviewer and I'm basically just kind of some guy that shows up and says like, hey, yeah, let's talk about some things for a little bit. So, so I'm, I'm almost going to take this as, an, ex, as a, an experience to try to learn a little bit more about like the skill and the art of interviewing because there really are some, some you know, like tactics and kind of some cues to pick up on. Um, maybe something I would say where I listen to Tim Ferriss pretty often and he had mentioned one of the things that changed his interviewing style was letting the silence do the work. And I really struggle with that because sometimes I'll ask a question and there's just space in the conversation for maybe the interviewee to breathe or maybe they're thinking or maybe they're like a little nervous and I want to jump in and save them a lot. Um, I guess what I'm asking is, is that like a cool piece of advice or what do you think is the most, uh, the most practical skill that you've brought into your interviews that have, that has kind of helped you? Yeah. I mean, I think Tim is dead on. I think it's the pause is what I would call it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I am someone I speak much slower than I think. And it's because I'm usually thinking out my thoughts before I say something. And I certainly like to give people the space to think out what they want to say. I mean, it's why, you know, a lot of times I joke that if I actually did a literal transcription of my interviews in these books, it, no one would read them because mm. a lot of times I let people ramble or, you know, stop, think. Sometimes they even say, can you turn off the recorder for a few minutes? So I wow, really? have a moment. I mean, I let them do whatever they want. And so for me, the best parts of an interview are the messy imperfect parts mm. that's i mean that's where most of the gold is because yeah. you're getting the person to go off script i never thought that i i guess from my standpoint i always tried to make it like as polished as like a piece of content or a product if you will as possible and i never really thought to actually look at the imperfect parts as like the real gold nuggets in there. Are you saying that they're imperfect because it's where people get like a little bit more vulnerable? I think people get more vulnerable. I think they actually think, I mean, it, it's funny, a guy that I'm, I've become really good friends with, um, which is kind of rare for me. Um, it takes a while for me to develop, develop friendships, but he's a painter in my second book, word of mouth, more conversations. His name's Omari Booker. And he and I were talking about how we think most people don't think a mm. lot. I think people are on autopilot much more than they realize. And so, you know, particularly I realized this when I was doing my last project, which was for a fortune 100 company and, you know, executives are groomed to have their story and sell it that way. And so my job was actually to come in and hit them sideways and in the most comfortable way possible and obviously mm -hmm. with a lot of grace and kindness get them to speak the truth about their lives and yeah. how they were actually feeling and so i think it is a skill i think it takes a lot of patience and i think it takes a lot of comfort being uncomfortable yeah i think that's probably the thing because people get uncomfortable putting the microphones in people's face adds a whole nother extra element to it but even in just standard conversation if, if even if you're like an office talking to a colleague or something i'll speak for myself i feel those uncomfortable moments and i like to kind of jump in and sort of rescue the moment and even just kind of sitting here with you it's very clear that um you're that you've sort of practiced the ability to think and speak slowly enough to get like an entire thought out from 
beginning to end because I, in conversation, I think a lot of people have trouble with that. They're kind of jumping all around and like, what do I say next? And they, they second guess maybe what it is that they're saying. And you seem very poised in, in that area. Thanks. Well, I attribute a lot of it to meditation cool. and um, I think not being poised, you know, I mean, it, it's very humbling to listen to yourself on recorder and I've been doing what I do, you know, I'm 31 now since I was 19 really. So for quite some time. And so I've listened to thousands of hours of myself on recorder and I've heard all the ums and ahs and rambles and sounding uncomfortable. And I mean, at a certain point, I just thought, you know, I'm okay with the imperfect. I also want to sound like I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, and I do. I, you know, and that's the thing most people do. I think most people who have a, you know, a niche or a niche, we we're saying we didn't quite know how Which to pronounce one is it, it earlier. Which one is it? Um, I'll do my own interpretation. Uh, a speciality, they, they do know their stuff, but, you know, it's, I think it's nerve wracking talking about it. And I think particularly I've, you know, speaking in public settings, I work with a speaking coach. Um, you know, I, I've, I've taken it very seriously because I think also as an artist and a young woman who looks a lot younger than I am, I'm automatically, um, on the defense. Mm. And so I realized I needed a lot of research and credibility. It's why I tell, always tell people I've done, you know, over a thousand interviews in my career. I've interviewed people in cities all over the country, other countries, um, not to brag, but it's just factual. It's part of your resume. And also I want to sound like I know my stuff, which I know I do. Do you find research to be a, a, a big part of your process? I do. I used to not do it as much as I do now because I liked the spontaneity of conversations. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times I, when I was starting off and I was younger, I would almost walk in blind, which I would not recommend to any journalist. I actually had some great interviews that way, probably just by sheer dumb luck. But I think that actually the more prepared you are, the more spontaneous you can be. It's kind of like if you're a chef you need the foundation of really knowing the basics of cooking before you can get creative. And so I agree. when I was in London last summer, I felt like I really had to step up my game. I was interviewing some really renowned people, people that I was very nervous to interview that were experts in their industries. And so I spent probably three times as much time prepping one, cause I had the time and two, because I thought, this is my chance to really prove myself against a group of people who cool. I know are a lot smarter than me. And I found that the more I knew on the front end, the more flexible I was able to be. I have found that as well. And I think that's a really good piece of advice because for as rookie as I am at doing this, I've so I'll give an example. I interviewed the head maestra for the Fort Lauderdale Orchestra. And she was somebody that I really didn't know a whole lot about. And I don't know a whole lot about that world, you know. Um, so I was nervous. But I went in there a little bit more prepared than I usually do because it's just a whole different context. You know, even here, you and I are probably in a little bit more similar of a context where we have some similarities with our interests and, and who we are as people. Uh, but with her, just completely different contexts and worlds and backgrounds. So because I was prepared in a way, there was nothing that kind of caught me off guard that would keep me from having the flexibility to kind of meander in the conversation, you know? And I think till this day, that's probably one of my favorite conversations that I've ever had with somebody because she was so interesting and like the passion that she had about music, uh, man, it was like, it just really came out of her. And it gave me a whole new appreciation for interviews because in like looking at her eyes and in her reactions, I was asking her questions that you tell, like nobody ever actually asked her before because it was off the beaten path of just what, you know, what's it like for this next performance or what do you have going on with your orchestra? I was actually asking her questions about like her and like what music means to her. And it just brought out a whole nother side of her. And I, it, it just gave me a whole new appreciation for interviewing. And I, I think it was so cool. Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think the more comfortable you are, and sometimes it even just comes down to being confident in yourself. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, again, I mentioned meditation earlier. I mean, I always say number one thing 
with my interviews is taking care of me because I believe in energy and I think that people, whether you're someone who's super sensitive like I am or you think you're not, I think we're much more in tune than we think we are. And so what do you I, mean by that? Um, I mean, I think that we can just pick up on stuff. And so, you know, I know I people always say to me after my interviews, you know, wow, I felt so relaxed talking to you. Thank you so much. I felt like I could tell you anything you're just very, you know, it's peaceful to be around you. And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, I mean, I do a lot of work on myself. I mean, you know, I've been in cool. therapy for a long time. I mean, mm. I have, I've meditated. I mean, I, I do a whole smorgasbord of stuff to keep myself good. So I'm able to put other people at ease so they can be the best versions of themselves. Mm. And I think that's, you know, where inner work is done to do good in this world. What kind of meditation do you do? Um, I mean, I, I used to be really like um, sort of um, militaristic about it, and I'm not as much anymore. I, I, I used to do it every single day, and now I don't. But even if I'm walking down the street, a lot of times for like 20 or 30 minutes, I'll just pull out my headphones and just walking meditation. Right. I mean, for me, it's become more of just being present and cognizant and aware mm. of my surroundings and focusing on my breath and I think it can be done anywhere. I mean, I think it can be done at just like a part-time job. And I actually think when you start to incorporate that stuff, especially with breath work into everyday life, your life just becomes better across the board. So do I. Yeah, I, I'm, geez, I'm, I'm really similar to you in that way where I used to really try to practice it. Like, no, it's, it's time for me to meditate. And then like ironically, almost in doing that, it would kind of give me the opposite effect, you know? But I have found the walking, um, I'm really into fitness in general, and I, I think fitness is a form of meditation within itself, which I think a lot of people would probably agree. But walking especially, and the word that you said is about being present, because I can always tell when I'm not enjoying the moment and when there's something else either in the future or in the past that is what is consuming my mind right now. And, and meditation has done a lot of that. For me, I, I think it's a, I think it's a great practice for everybody. It's kind of one of those things. Where it's like, why doesn't everybody just do this? And I'm not really sure why they don't. There's so many benefits from it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say my interviews are a form of meditation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think anything. I, it was funny. I spoke at the Chamber of Commerce this week, which was a great honor, and. I always talk about my three primary influences and I'm very open about the fact I've been through two tons of talk therapy in my life and I still go and I still think it's, I'm not as dependent on it as I once was, but I think everyone should do it mm -hmm. once in their life. And it's the one-on-one -on -one focused attention. It's like, how much in your life do you have this? Where like someone's like showing a genuine interest in approaching the conversation, like you said in your email yeah. days before with a sheer sense of curiosity about the other person. And yeah. so I would say for me, I mean, my interviews in that way are very meditative where I'm just really on the same wavelength as my subject and we're connecting and we're sharing. And I think it's the quality of attention that creates such a deep bond between my subjects and I, because I always think about that. I mean, like at my launch party for my second book, which was a couple of weeks ago, I mean, I thought it's, I, I find it very interesting how um, a lot of people say they feel a bond with me afterwards. And I do too. I mean, it's mutual um, because we don't spend that much time together. It could be like an hour, but I think because I'm so with them and I get them and I try so hard to get them, whether or not I understand them right off the bat, which a lot of times I don't because people are so complex. Yes. I think that they, that, that they respect that. I mean, just to put it like quite frankly. I agree. I think people appreciate upfrontedness maybe is the word, especially in like an interview format. Um, you, you mentioned something, the real connection of a conversation. Do you, what do you do with cell phones when you interview somebody? Do you have like a policy that no notifications, no nothing? Put them away. Yeah. I mean, the, I was funny actually, I was thinking about this the other day because I was, um, I was, I've been writing a business plan around my last book because now I'm pitching, you know, other very large companies mm -hmm. for me to create custom books for them. And I thought it's kind of amazing that I interviewed 51 people for that project, all 
top-notch. 51. Yeah, top-notch executives, a 250,000-person company, and only one time in 51 interviews did someone's cell phone go off. And right away I said, sir, with all due respect, this is you and me time. Can you please put that away? And he did. And I mean, you know, for me, it's like, it's an hour out of your day. And I'm giving you not just that time in that space, but I'm spending an hour to two hours prepping and probably six hours afterwards transcribing, writing up the piece. The mm-hmm. very least you can do is give me your undivided attention for 45 minutes to an hour. And I've noticed, and I want your thoughts on this as well, that the depth of the conversation is so much different when there's not so for instance, even if they're respectful enough not to answer their cell phone, even just that little like, and you see their eyes kind of twitch the other way, can just throw an entire conversation off. And I think one of the reasons why I like long form interview podcasts, especially is because like the depth of the conversation is something that I think we're really lacking in just life and and day-to-day interaction with people, just the ability to sit and you talk and I listen and then I'll talk and you listen and really, really listen and try to absorb like the meaning behind the words that you're saying. I think that's so cool that you, you I don't know if you said you have a policy, but you, you, you try to abide by that, that standard because I agree. I think, this, I think the cell phones and just the distractions in general are kind of conversation killers within our world. They are. And I think it's, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's a disruption. It's an interruption. Mm-hmm. And I think that bleeds into regular conversations. I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it's funny. I'm like a pretty easygoing person, but one thing that drives me crazy, and I, I actually have had talks with people in my life about this, <laughs> like, this is my pet peeve. Don't do this to me. And they respect it is when people interrupt. And I, I mean, if you think about it, it's like, People do that with a phone all the time. I'm always amazed when I'm talking to someone and they all of a sudden, whether it's demonstrative or not, like they're like, oh, I got to show you this. Oftentimes what I'll say is don't, you know, and they always look at me kind of like, really? And I'm like, just send me an email afterwards. Like, I don't Mm. need to see whatever article you're talking about. I'm not going to stand here and read it right now. Yeah. And I mean, whoever that person you're talking about on Instagram, like, it's just not important. And I think (laughs) that again, we live in this world where like, we're so busy doing God knows what, I mean, not really that important stuff all the time. And then when someone really awesome appears and wants to have a conversation, it's like, we don't make time for that. Cause you're still somewhere else, right? Cause you're still somewhere else. And so, I mean, that's the thing that, I mean, I've really, and it's taken a long time. I mean, I would say it's taken my whole career to hone that ability and I've gotten I would say pretty good at it, which is when I'm in the setting like we're in right now, I am able to just compartmentalize and anything that's been going on in my personal life goes away. And I've had like crazy moments. Like I remember um, two years ago, I was being photographed for the cover of a local magazine or three years ago when my first book came out. And I found out something terrible, like five minutes happened right before that. But I think again, you know, you just, you learn how to do that. You learn to put it aside and what's happening right in front of you is the most important thing. And then if you want, you can go back to that other thing. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, interruptions and it's too funny that you mentioned that because my father's actually in town and, uh, <laughs> he came. To, yeah, I know. So we went out to dinner last night and he was talking about some things that he hates. And he said, you know, what drives me the craziest he goes, when you're having a conversation and somebody says, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, and then interrupts. And he goes, one, you're not sorry because you did it. And two, like, why would you prerequisite your interruption with an, <laughs> with an interruption? You know, it's like either interrupt me and just be upfront about the fact that you interrupt me or just wait till I'm done speaking. And God, when he said it, it was one of those things, you know, when like your mom or your dad says something, you're like, ah, oh, shit. Like, I think I interrupt people probably a little bit too much. And I've been thinking about it all morning. And just hearing you say that might be like, I don't know what your beliefs are, but like a little God moment or like a little shot. It's like, hey, you should probably be a little bit more aware of that. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like fear that you're not going to like get in your two cents. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, bottom line, because I guess I spend my interviews just listening. Most of them aren't this conversational. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I've learned to just go home and write down my thoughts and I have peace with that. It's why I post, you know, 
frequently on social media or I write for myself, save it for the speaking engagements. I mean, I, I have just, I, I got to a certain point where I was like, why do I even need to tell that person that? Who cares? You know, mm -hmm. like you're just, you're lucky that you had that epiphany or thought, just keep it for yourself and do something proactive with it. Um, yeah. And then also it's funny because it's why I like to interview older people so much. And I think that older people, it's funny, I, I, I'm doing a live interview at the Jewish Cultural Center in a couple of weeks. I'm interviewing cool. one of the more well-known chefs for my book. And I said, dude, it's going to be elders. They're like 69 to like 109 or something <laughs> crazy. But I said, it's my favorite group of people. We'll definitely need a microphone, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I said, because they... They miss the art of conversation and yes. listening and their attention spans are a lot longer. And yes. it, it's always, um, what I find on a more positive note really amazing is like when my intern came over yesterday and I absolutely adore her. When I meet someone who's in their teens or early 20s and their attention span isn't fragmented because she's on social media and doing her thing and YouTubing and whatever, but she's still able to like sit there for an hour and a half and like hold a conversation. And a lot of 30 year olds I need can't do that. Can't do that. You're man. We have just so many similarities in, in some of the stuff we think about. And I, I'd like to reroute a little bit because attention, just even the word attention, I've been thinking about a lot recently. I've been writing a lot and um, I, I might have even mentioned it in the last interview I did at the EC. So I, for fear of like repeating myself, but whatever, I'm going to do it anyway. It seems like everybody's just after attention and like attention is now this currency and it's kind of this thing that we don't value that much anymore. And I, I fear, worry, um, ponder about a lot, just how dis destructive maybe it is that we throw our attention like our most valuable cognitive asset in so many different areas and let me do a little bit of this and oh let me read that and let me look at this video and and let me jot down this idea and then talk to this person over here where i think our culture tells us that it's better because we can multitask and we can get like a lot done at once you know but the older I get and the more I do it, I'm really, really convinced that I think we're better off like having one thing and just being able to focus on one thing and making it the best that it could possibly be. Oh, absolutely. And I totally, and I actually, it was funny. I told you I spent the last two weeks um, working a couple hours every day on basically condensing all of these different talks I'd written into a 10 minute speech, which is what I wanted. Brevity is not my forte. And so I'm, I'm trying really hard to aim for, you know, short and sweet and to the point, cool. um, which I do in my writing very well and talking. I'm, I'm more, what would the word be like loquacious? Like I'm, I'm like a rambler myself. Oh, okay, sure. And so, um, but I always talk about that and it's funny because as much as I'm a free spirit and I've moved around and I've traveled a lot and I've had a million different part-time jobs, I've always really stuck with the same things, which is I've done visual art my whole life and my interviews and writing. And it takes so long to get good at something. It really does. Why. I mean, I'm 13 years into doing this and I still question myself all the time. And I still have moments where I think, do I really know what I'm doing? And I know that I do, but Personally, I mean, one of my favorite people I interviewed in the UK last year, who I would call a friend now, she's the Mexican ambassador there. Wow. And she knows more about Mexico than anyone I've ever met in my whole life. And she said, I don't consider myself an expert. It takes mm -hmm. a lifetime. And I find it interesting because we live in a society where you can call yourself an expert about, about anything. Yes. Yeah. Um, wow. I I'm so on the same wavelength with you. And I find that with my writing, especially I've been writing basically every day for 10 years. And I swear I'm just getting to the point where I actually like publish stuff and I'm able to look at it and be like, you know what? Like, that's pretty good. I think I was able to take this whole abstract idea I had in my head and actually consolidate it and uh, format it in a way that tells a story. And just to hear you say it takes so long to get good at something is... God, it's like refreshing to hear that because it's so easy to get caught up in, in 
being in so many different places at once and then getting frustrated because you're not at like the top level to where people that you may be idolizing are within like a year. And like, it takes so much longer than a year to get good at anything, to really get good at anything. Sure. And I mean, you know, I I interview people that um, I'm thinking of a couple in particular who, you know, they're very good at what they do and they have a very big following a couple years in. And that's great. And usually, Mm -hmm. you know, you find out that they had some sort of investor or something behind them. I mean, I don't think anyone who doesn't have money behind them has overnight success. I think that's like one of bazillion chance. But most of the people that I resonate with the most because I'm kind of an old soul type who has, like I said, I got started writing really young and I pursued it for my entire life. Um, there are people like myself where they, my dad always says it perfectly because he's, you know, a professional cartoonist and musician and writer. And he said, most people who follow something their whole life, they knew what they wanted to do as a kid. And I believe that. I so mean, do I. You know, a lot of the people that I interviewed, I keep going back to the UK because that was probably my favorite interview series I ever did. But um, all of those people I interviewed, really famous, well-known people, what they pursued that they were the most passionate about, it was what they wanted to do as a child. And whether or not they did it their whole lives, somehow it was always a part of it. I don't think when you just pick something up and you try to turn it into something overnight, that's mm-hmm. really a good way to go about stuff because there's no depth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, people see an opportunity and say like, oh, okay, let me – let me dive in here because I think I can make something of it. Um, so you had mentioned in your interview with the Mexican ambassador, you said, yes, um, it, it struck me because there was a line and I know it's just a couple of minutes ago. I, I kind of forget it already. I, I'm, I'm not an expert. It takes a lifetime. Have there been a lot of moments like that where you interview something and you get hit with kind of these one liners that really stick with you? Like, do you bring these interviews with you everywhere you go? Yeah, absolutely. I I certainly think about my subjects a lot afterwards. I take my time writing about them. Um, my last book project was kind of unusual that we were on such a tight deadline that I had to just kind of crank it out. That being said, I, I lived and breathed that project for four months. And mm-hmm. so I felt like I still gave each person quality time and attention to figure them out. Um, I think my editor had to do more work on the back end, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, people say stuff to me all the time that I chew on. And sometimes it's, it's so much in one interview. Like I'm thinking about this biographer that I interviewed in the UK last year, who I was such a big fan of. And I was, who was so, it? his name's Robert Lacey. He's also the lead historian on the television show, the crown, which is on Netflix. Absolutely. And I was just such a big fan of his and I was so nervous. And I remember walking away thinking, my God, I mean, I could listen to that interview over and over. Um, and then sometimes it's just something really small that someone says that sticks with me, but there's always gold. And again, when I've, been really writing about my craft a lot recently and doing these speaking engagements. I always say at the end, I'm like, listen, I know not everyone is going to go out there and write a book or do an interview series, but if I can encourage you just to be more open in conversations and more curious and realize everyone truly does have something to say, some sort of insight or wisdom derived from their experience, I think you'll have a much more interesting life. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I said to my fiance Juliana, that when I started doing my podcast, I did it because, um, like, uh, it was a little ambitious, you know, like I wanted to start, I'd built so many online brands and had always kind of been behind them all. And selfishly, I, I kind of was thinking about like, let me do something for myself, you know? But what happened so quickly is that the value in it for me became so much less about, you know, quote, a brand or whatever, but just getting to sit down and talk to people who are so interesting. Like the more people you talk to, the more you realize that people are just like really, really interesting and everyone has cool stories and different perspectives and, and different upbringings and like little lessons that have been thrown in their life. And I feel like I I bring a lot of that stuff with me. And basically what I'm saying is it sounds like, what you're telling me is that yes, there's value in like having this, this book and this art and be able to do the work, but the interviews themselves really provide value to you on like a personal level. 
Oh yeah. I mean, I'm like a different person than I was when I even moved to Nashville. And I mean, a much kinder, gentler, certainly wiser person. And I think that I've realized everyone has something substantial to say. I mean, the last project I did for the Fortune 100 company, I mean, it was so meaningful to me because I interviewed everyone from the CEO and the founder to the janitor. And the janitor and the security guard were like my two favorite interviews, of course. And I've since kept in touch with one of them. And you just realize that someone could be doing, you know, sweeping the floor. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. just standing by the door watching what's happening. And they think very deeply about what they do because if there are a someone who is, you know, spiritual and soulful and they've been through a lot. I mean, everyone wants purpose in their life. I I really believe that. I really believe everyone wants passion and purpose. And those that have it have much easier times walking through life, which is inevitably up and down. I mean, life is not good all the time. And I think those that don't have it, I do think there is this, um, there's this lack or there's this sort of discomfort, um, dissatisfaction. And so I found it really interesting that it was all these people that were in quote unquote regular jobs. Yeah, They were like, Hey man, I mean, I love what I do. I found my calling. I know I'm good at it and I'm awesome. And I was like, you are awesome. Like, amen. Purpose for sure. I, I read somewhere that, um, and this is a psychologist, so I'm sure there's other arguments to kind of combat it or whatever, but people want to be satisfied and they want to have a purpose. And that happiness is kind of this weird climbing game where you reach satisfaction and then you kind of lack a purpose because then there's nothing to like go after, you know? And so then like your purpose level goes up mm-hmm. so that you have some other uh, contribution that you want to bring into the world. And then you're unsatisfied because you haven't reached it yet. And it's this cool little little climbing ladder and I can see that in my own life and see where because you mentioned being comfortable before and any time that I'm uncomfortable I usually see it as a sign that it means I'm growing yeah. there's just something about uh, when I, I, I get still and I, I look around, I go like, oh man, like things are really, really great right now. Usually the next day I'm like looking for a way that I can kind of <laughs> screw everything up, you know, and like, and break stuff and, and try to find a way to, uh, to keep moving on it. I think that it's super cool what you do. And in a way, like I said, I was a little bit nervous to talk to you because you have so much experience doing this thing that like I'm clumsily kind of stumbling in here to to do with you. And you're you're like a real expert at your craft. Thank you. Well, you're doing an excellent job. Great. First and foremost. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I think when you are uncomfortable, I was very uncomfortable in the whole last year. I had a very uncomfortable last year. I was in... Uh, a foreign country half of last year and then um or a little bit less and then i was doing this huge project for a fortune 100 company and both worlds i knew nothing about and i think you can do as much research on the front end i i, I do think when you're doing a deep dive in it. into a different environment you just don't know what's going to happen it was mm-hmm. the same thing when i moved to nashville six years ago which was terrifying yeah and so I think you just kind of roll with it. And a big thing with my brand and books that I try to really assert is I try to be respectful of the world that I'm in. So, you know, I get hired now. I mean, that I'm doing these corporate projects because I'm different and because I'm not a part of the culture and I might become buddy buddy with some people in it, but I'm not like socializing with them because I want to keep that objectivity. And I am completely objective because I've never had a day job in my life. And so that's critical, but also, you know, I mean, I know how to adapt myself to the environment enough to make people feel at ease. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important because I'm myself when I leave there. I mean, I come home and obviously you can see my apartment. I mean, I, I draw and do my thing and, you know, I, I don't ever lose myself. Um, but when I'm in that situation, yeah, I want to be respectful of where I am. 
Absolutely. Every culture has its own values and its way of doing stuff. And it might not resonate with me. I can't say every place I've ever spent time in, I wanted to stay. I mean, I've always kind of felt like a stranger in a strange land because in a way I sort of fit in everywhere and then nowhere at the same time. Like a chameleon? Yeah, exactly. You, you see yourself as a chameleon? I think they would call it, they referred to um, Prince Harry's new wife, Meghan Merkel, as a shapeshifter. Uh, I would okay. say I would probably have some of that in me too. I have felt the same way. I've been able to. I mentioned my father earlier. He gifted me with kind of the gift of gab, where even if it's something I know nothing about, I can act my way into not sticking out too much. Um, I think there's pros and cons to that too, because at the same time, I think everybody is looking for like their one little spot to sort of fit in, you know. Uh, total sidebar, but you had mentioned earlier when you were just talking that people knew um, that there was purpose in like knowing what you wanted to do when you grew up. Did you always know that this is what you love to do was to draw and write and interview and, and, and be in the art scene? Yeah. I would say I feel the most comfortable when I'm around artists. And I was thinking about it the last time I was in Chicago because uh, my dad and I had dinner one night with his best friend, John Kurtz, who's a very well-known, immensely talented painter. My dad is as well. And I thought – here I am sitting with, and I say this lovingly because they'll probably listen to this, you know, two very weird guys. Um, But I'm like – totally at ease. And so, you know, I grew up in a very freewheeling, just artistic world and I get artists. Um, so I would say that's where I feel probably the most, like I can kind of shake it out. And I do think everyone's looking for their place. I think it's why I always knew I wanted to pursue something in the arts and, you know, I, I've dabbled in a lot of different stuff and I've always kind of stuck to the same things. Um, but I think that when you have your sense of purpose, that allows you to fit in sort of anywhere. Mm-hmm. Because even when I've been in foreign countries and I felt like a total, you know, weirdo because I couldn't really oblige to some of the cultural stuff. Like when I was in Britain, for example, sure. I, I'm a very open, emotional person. I'm not going to shut You're down not like emotionally. That in Britain. Yeah. yeah. And so. You know, I struggled with that because when everyone around you is acting in a certain way, you start to question yourself. But it was amazing because I leaned on my interviews and I did probably the best interviews in my life there. And I thought, no, I mean, this is what you you bring your gifts to the table. And so that gave me a sense of confidence. And it also was like my rock, my cornerstone. Yeah. So. And another thought that kind of came into my head when listening to you speak, and I think just from our conversation so far, you can add a lot of value to other artists in this area. Um, you've also had great success like commercial, commercially or, or business-wise. And I've, I've personally seen there be a, a strong disconnect, and some people might get pissed off at me for saying this, but a lot of times artists have a hard time making money from their art, you know? Mm-hmm. And... I, I encourage artists to see both sides of it because sure there's purity in your art, but there's also purity in like making a living from it as well. And uh, what do you think is a good kind of transition to be able to see yourself as just an artist, somebody who loves what they do and wants to express themselves and then being able to take that to that next level where they can actually like make money from it and, and provide a living for themselves in that way? Yeah, I mean, I think at a certain point, you know, everyone has to. It took me a really long time to figure it out. Did I mean, it? Honestly, yeah, it did. I mean, I always. You seem so natural at it. Um. Well, I mean, I was always paid a little bit of money to write, yeah. and I was very lucky early on. I started getting paid, you know, to write for some pretty prominent Chicago magazines, and I landed cool. those freelance jobs through interning there. But that being said, I mean you know, freelance writing doesn't pay a lot. And so I always have part-time jobs. And I'm, that's something I'm actually really proud of because I knew that I wanted to write and I knew in order to write, which at the most, I mean, you know, really could pay between 200 and maybe a thousand bucks a month, maybe mm-hmm. more if I was doing bigger jobs. Like I, I've, you know, have freelanced in advertising or PR, that kind of stuff. You can 
certainly charge more or like the last book project I did paid very well. But, you know, there was a long time, I would say 10 years where, I mean, it was just piecemealing stuff together and being like, you know what? I have total peace most of the time about the fact that I work in the service industry four or five nights a week. And I still do it in between book projects because for me, I don't like to stress about money. I grew up in an environment where money was very much um, a stress and a, a talking point all the time. So I like the fact that as an adult, I mean, right now I'm fine financially. If I want to do something, I can. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I three or four days a week have to work at a restaurant to have some money coming in between book projects, that's fine by me because also it allows me to be choosier about the writing jobs that I choose. Because you have options. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't, I totally you know, agree there. Sh sharks can spell desperation like blood in the Certainly water. Can. So, you know, if you go into a meeting and you're like, hey, this is what I do. I'm really proud of it. I've written three books. I own my own publishing house, X, Y, and Z. Take it or leave it. I mean, I think that's really attractive. So do I. It's similar to dating. Yeah, there's there's definitely something about the like I don't need you, that that is just really powerful. And I, yeah, I think maybe that probably is the um, the nail on the head that that you just hit, putting yourself in a position where you're not like dependent on your next job. I've seen artists and, and writers especially because freelance writing. You're right. A lot of times freelance writers get really like taken advantage of. Um, but being, a, being able to put yourself in a spot, however it is that you do that to know that when you go into a situation, be like, look, I don't need you. I would like to do this. It would be good and I would enjoy it, but like, I don't need this. And then when you have that, you kind of have like the leverage and the power of a negotiation, I guess, I guess it would be. I mean, negotiation, I think also honing a special skill or talent is also really valuable. Yeah, like I mean, being I know, really good at something. Yeah. I mean, I know for me, I get calls often because I'm known for writing bios and apparently it's like a very cool. niche thing, niche thing. Um, going back <laughs> and, forth. and I, you know, I didn't realize that until I, you know, sort of started getting calls from all these huge companies. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I thought, yeah, I mean, they're right. I have, you know, 12, 13 years of experience doing this. Sure. So um, I guess I can leverage my abilities a little bit more. I think also, you know, you mentioned that you recently joined the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. I live mm -hmm. next door. I have had partnerships with them. You know, I did a live interview series there for a year and I've taken several business classes. I'm wrapping up one right now. That place has been amazing. And I'll tell you why is because I didn't really grow up around business people. Me neither. And so, you know, I mean, both my parents were self-employed. They taught me what they could. They obviously were able to pay their bills, but no one really ever talked to me about how to negotiate or how to price myself out or competition, yeah. white space. I mean, stuff I never heard of. And so that place has not only been instrumental in terms of knowledge, but also they have assigned me all of these amazing mentors, like my current one, Jeremy, who I just adore. And they really have pumped up my confidence and, and they treat me like an equal. So, I mean, it's, it's a huge, I would say confidence and knowledge and knowing that I have people who have my back. Like if I go into sure. a meeting and I say, wow, I don't know the answer to that question, but let me get back to you in a day. And yes. I have someone to call. I mean, that is hugely transformative. And I think that a lot of artists don't have it, but they should seek after it because that stuff is available. I, I 100, so, so cool that you just said that the, the skill of, I mean, I, I don't even like the word networking because it feels kind of manipulative to me. Like I'm going to make this relationship because there's like an objective in mind, but if you can find communities, organizations, um, fellowships, whatever of like-minded people who are all willing to kind of help each other. I really, really think that's the best thing that anybody can do to get started, whether it's like a chamber of commerce or, or the entrepreneur center. I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it there. Uh, I think that's like the biggest thing that probably artists, but also just entrepreneurs in general lack is just having support around them because it, it can be like daunting, you know, to have these huge projects and these goals in mind and not necessarily know well, you never know if it's going to work out. You hope you do, but just to have somebody there to that's been through it before. 
hugely, yeah. hugely helpful. And I think also to have people who can see stuff you can't. I mean, I remember um, about a year ago, I found out that the real estate community had really caught on to my first book. And then all of a sudden the convention world did. And I mean, you know, that just was by happenstance. I mean, people were Googling gifts about Nashville or whatever. And my product came up. And so I, you know, I started. Oh, so like when real estate agents buy houses, like some of the gifts that they give. Welcome to your new home. So gift. cool. Yep. Yeah, I, yeah, I had lunch with one the other day and she's about to buy some in bulk. No um, way. Yep. And I said, Cindy, they gave me a bottle of wine and I don't even drink. Yeah, <laughs> I was yeah, like, yeah. oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. That's exactly what I said. I said, I'm going to replace over oh, the Bibles and all the hotel rooms <laughs> and the bottles of wine in the new homes. But, um, that was another thing. I mean, where I, 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 I thought, wow, holy smokes. Like this is great. Went to the EC, asked a bunch of people, what do you think about this? And they're like, I think you should go after, you know, attorney offices or finance firms yeah. or whatever. And I can't do everything and I don't pursue everything that's advised to me, but I would say a lot of my best ideas have certainly come from other people, mm -hmm. even my book series. Restraint though. You, you, you mentioned restraint. I, I can speak to other people and I try to help other people by saying like, don't do it what I did because I, I do get kind of like, what's it like shiny object syndrome, you know, like I see all these fun things and I was like, Oh, like I want to do that and that and that. But uh, having restraint is certainly important. Well, I mean, look, Lily, this was like a really, really great time. Uh, thank you so much for taking all the time out with me. Uh, if, if you would be shameless plug, you know, tell people where they can get word of mouth, tell people where they can find you the best place to buy it. Um, please. I know that people are going to be interested in your book. Sure. So my first book, word of mouth, Nashville conversations, you can buy on Amazon and my second book, word of mouth, more conversations is available on my website, which cool. uh, is word of mouth conversations.com. You can also buy it all around Nashville, if you're local, um, it's sold at Batch, the Keep Shop at the Noel Hotel, the Convention and Visitors Center, and Parnassus. Mm -hmm. And then my third book, uh, which will be out next month, um, that I'll be able to talk about a little more when it comes out. But I'm creating custom books for large organizations and corporations now. Great. So if anyone needs a book, feel free to email me. Yeah, and I'll link all that up in the show notes of the article, and I'll put your email address on there. Um, you're a real fascinating person and I had a great time talking to you and uh, thank you so much for, for doing this with me. Uh, thank you everybody for listening to the podcast. Uh, if you could do me a favor, the best thing you can do to support the show is to leave a rating or subscribe to the iTunes. I appreciate you guys so much. I'll talk to you next week, Lily. Thank you one more time. Thank you. Sure. It was a pleasure. See you later. Hey guys, it's me. It's Tim. One last time before we wrap up, just wanted to say thank you for tuning into the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes. Please leave me an honest rating. Please follow me on Spotify. It's the best thing you can do to support the show. If you want to find out more, go to timstods.com. Feel free to fill out the contact form to reach out to me personally. I always respond. I appreciate you guys so much. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one.